We have, over the last four weeks, been going through our core values as a church family. It's important, a few things that we remember as we are going through these core values. These aren't just things that we're like, at word of grace, these things matter to us in ways that they don't matter elsewhere. No, it's like, these are things that we believe biblically matter, that the Bible, Scripture, um, makes a case for these things being values that we all, as children of God, should hold. Um, and therefore, we built them as um, our seven core values as a church family. Over the last four weeks, we've gone through the first four core values. It's impressive math. Um, number one, we keep Jesus at the center because Christ alone is the hope of the world. The second was we are willing to give up what we believe for the truth because Scripture defines truth, not our ideas. The third was we prioritize prayer because when we pray, we deepen our dependence on God. The fourth was we do life together because we are better together. And this week, we're going to talk about the fifth core value, which is we are contributors, not consumers, because we recognize what we have been given isn't just for us. Let's pray so I don't botch this thing any more than I'm capable of doing. Father, we thank you for being with us today. Thank you that you're mindful of us. Thank you that we have an opportunity to come together as your family, as your children, to seek you, to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. And as we enter your word today, God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us into all truth, that you would, on behalf of everyone listening, that you would bring illumination to help us all see the truth, help us have the faith to receive it and act on it, and that we would be transformed by it. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't noticed, all of our core values, as we've said them, is a statement of that core value followed by a why that works with that core value. Or not works with, more so drives or motivates, gives uh, the, the reason why that value is a value we hold. Like number one, um, we keep Jesus at the center. Why? Because he alone is the hope of the world. That's why we want to keep Christ as the center. The second one, um, we are willing to give up what we believe for the truth. Why? Well, because scripture alone defines truth, not our ideas or our feelings or pop culture or celebrities or politicians or New York Times bestsellers. Scripture defines truth, and that's why we're willing to give up what we believe if Scripture challenges what we believe. Amen? It's important that we understand why these things matter, why we hold these as values that we want to be core values of our church family, because it's far too popular, too easy, too common for there to be zingy one-liners that have a nice ring to them but no substance. Like, I mean, especially if you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you can see this all the time, people that are like social media prophets that have baked together this perfect one-liner that makes you go, oh, snap, retweet, or like, or share. And because it sounds good, but is there really substance, scripture-based substance to these statements? I encourage you to think that way. Challenge yourself as you read things like that. Is this built off of Scripture? Does this have substance to it? Um, we are contributors, not consumers. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. Oh, great. I came on the week where the pastor is going to stand up there for 40 minutes and talk to us 
about how we need to volunteer at the church, and if we are volunteering, we need to volunteer more, and how we need to give, and if we are giving, we need to give more. He's going to guilt trip us about serving and giving, etc., etc. And if you're thinking that, you're absolutely right. Just kidding. Just kidding. See, for a second there when I said absolutely right, you were like, dang, really? No, no. Um, th- here's the thing. Although the implications of this value that we are contributors, not consumers, although that does ripple into things like serving your church family for us on Team WOG uh, or serving your church family through your community groups or, or just your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the ripples and implications of that being a core value that we are contributors and not consumers is so much bigger than just that, if that makes any sense. So today, we're actually going to start with the gospel. If you've got the Bible, got your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, uh, you can download the YouVersion app for free on your smart device, and or we have Bibles available on the back uh, shelves back there. Uh, Those are for you to use today if you don't have a Bible with you. And if you do not own a Bible, we would love that to be a gift to you, that you would take that home and so that you have access to the Word of God for yourself. Ephesians chapter 2, this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church in the city of Ephesus in ancient Greece. And uh, we're going to start reading chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Somebody say, we all. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here comes the good news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We're going to stop right there for a moment. The gospel, that's a phrase, a term gospel that we, we receive from scripture and we say in church often. And in case that's one of those words that we say too much and don't explain, the term gospel in scripture, if you do a translation of that word from the original, uh, the Greek, it literally means the good news. So when Jesus says, preach the gospel to every nation, he's saying, preach the good news. And when I'm up here saying this section of scripture, Ephesians 2, 1 through, honestly, all the way to 10 is a really great summary snapshot of the gospel. What I'm saying is this passage does a really great job of summarizing the good news for us. Now, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. In the first chapter, he opens it up the way he, tri- he traditionally opens up all of his letters. He greets them, talks about how much he misses them and things like that. And then he starts giving praise and glory to God for what God has accomplished, for who God is. He's just declaring God's goodness. And then Paul 
tells the Ephesian church, I'm so thankful for you guys. Here's what I've been praying for you. I've been praying that God would open up your understanding and show you more. And he tells them, I'm praying this for you and this for you. And then that prayer, he just gets like so jazzed in his prayer that it starts overflowing into him just talking about the supremacy of Christ, how Jesus is above every authority and above every power, and he's got dominion over everything, that God seated him at the right hand. And so he's sitting here just declaring the supremacy of Christ. And then after that, he launches in to this summary that we just read of the gospel, where he says, now you were dead in your trespasses and sins that you used to walk in, like the rest of mankind, following the passions of your flesh. By nature, we were children of wrath, meaning we were born children, sinners that would ultimately face the wrath of God. But because of the great love with which God loved us, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Here's the gospel. By grace, you have been saved. That means it's a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't work for it. Even if you wanted to try, you're not capable in and of yourself to earn God's salvation. It took the powers above and beyond us to reach down into our hopeless sinful state to pull us out of the muck and mire of our sin, the free grace, the free gift of God to save us from our sins. That is the gospel that even though we botched the whole thing, even though every single one of us, I could ask for a show of hands, I don't have to. I know you're all sinners because I am too. And scripture says we are. It says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Because we were born, as it says in chapter 2, children of wrath, we were born sinners. But God didn't say, well, I tried. Too bad, I guess, you're on your own. No, he looked into our hopeless and sinful state. And he gives us the free gift of his love. We contribute because we've been given the greatest gift. See, we've all been given gifts in our life. Various times, various degrees. We just had Christmas. Chances are you probably got a gift or two. You probably gave some gifts. We have our birthdays, Valentines, whatever, all these times in our lives where we get gifts. But some gifts weigh more than others. There's gifts that have like a special meaning or gifts that came at a higher cost. And those gifts usually without someone telling you to or saying so, those gifts usually prompt a response. Like, so what could be called a small gift, if you will, could like, oh, thank you, I love you, you could get that hug. Or maybe if it had a little more meaning to it, maybe you're just compelled to write that thank you letter. You know, that, that gift meant something, and I want to let them know, so I'm going to thank you, give that letter. Do we recognize, as we just read the gospel about being saved by grace, that that is the greatest gift you will have ever received in your existence. And that gift motivates a response that ought to be so much more severe, so much more drastic than any response we've ever responded to in our life. 
Let's imagine it this way. Let's play pretend for a minute, okay? Let's pretend that you made a really bad decision and got involved with the mob. I wouldn't advise that. Let's pretend you got involved with the mob. And as you started getting involved with the mob, the mob you found yourself in debt to them. And let's pretend that the debt that you accrued to them was massive, millions of dollars. Let's pretend that the debt that you accrued to the mob was so massive, so large, so bad, so severe that you've come to the conclusion, the realization that there is no way in your entire life that you're ever going to be able to fulfill the payment that they require, and therefore you owe them your service for the rest of your life. That stinks. Because the mob is not a good master. They're not a gracious master. And so you are here, you're committed with this debt that you hate, that you wish you hadn't got yourself into that condition, into that situation, but you did, and now you can't get yourself out of it. And one day, one random person comes into your life and says, hey, I hear you have a debt, and I hear that you can't pay it. I want to be a beneficiary because I have the ability in and of myself to pay that debt for you. I want to pay it for you. Now, what kind of response would you have? You'd be like, well, uh, but why? You would be dumbfounded. You would be blindsided. You would be probably, even though in your heart, you'd be like, yes. You'd be like, oh, no, don't do that. What? What for? I don't deserve, I haven't. And let's take it one step further. What if you even tried to reason with this benefactor and you said, well, I really, really appreciate that. I I'm, can't even say how thankful I would be that you would pay that, that debt for me. But, but listen, you don't understand. These guys, they're, they're not reasonable. Even if you pay my debt, you pay off what I owe them, they're still going to want to, they're not going to let me walk. They're going to want me dead because I know too much. I've seen too much. I'm, I'm, they're not going to let this go. And he says, I know. And because of that, actually, that's why I'm not just going to pay your price, the debt that you can't pay. I'm going to die in your place. Now, you'd be like, no. You'd probably have a shred of false nobility in you where you'd be like, no, no, you can't do that for me. But let's say that all played out and that person paid your debt. And even if you tried to argue, they said, it's already done. It is finished. Would you go, man, I, I guess I should write a thank you letter. Would you go, you, you know what, I should, uh, guess I'll give him a hug. Really appreciate it. Or maybe, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to go to a building with other people that this dude is blessed once a week, and we're going to talk about it. See, the, the gravity, the magnitude of the gift determines the depth of the response. And if the gospel, Jesus Christ, coming into your hopeless, sinful state, 
reaching down into the muck and mire of your sin. That was rebellion against him, remember. And pulling you out because of his own goodness, his own grace, his own mercy, his own volition, not because you deserved it or did anything that made him go, oh, that one did. Yeah, you know what? When you realize that, and when you've been honest with yourself about how severe your condition was, the only possible response is this dude paid it all for me. I don't deserve a lick of this. I've got to. I've got to give my life to him. Not that he's demanding or asking, and even though he, he deserves everything I've got. The gospel drives you to give, to serve, out of a response of what you have received. So the implications of this free gift of salvation are far beyond a one-time I got saved event. They're far beyond that. And if the gospel has not sunk down into your heart and compelled you to want to serve and give of your time, of your talents, of your resources, of your relationships, give of everything God has given you, then I fear for you because it means one of a few things. It means either you don't truly believe this gospel, or it means that you think that you actually played a part in rectifying your condition, or it means you have not been honest with yourself about how in debt you were. Because see, what we like to do, we think, especially in America, because we live in a culture and a society where Judeo-Christian values have popularly been accepted, even though that's weaning. Because we live in this society where it's been okay to be a Christian and even popular for a long time to be a Christian, what has happened is we think that the grace of God, the gospel, is God looking at our, oh, they, they spilt the milk. Let me get out the cleaning solution out from under the sink and let me, let me clean up their little mess and I'll put it away for now and next time they knock something over or they make a little spill, I'll get it out again. I'm going to, by my grace, clean up their little mess. We convince ourselves that we were not as depraved, as hopeless, as in enmity with God as we truly were or truly are because we feel like I go to church, I do enough good things, I try to be more good than I am bad. And especially if you're like me and you grew up in church, guess what? It's harder for you to be saved because you're taught how to be a good Christian person. And it's hard for us to be confronted and honest with ourselves about our depravity. I'm a pastor's kid. Every children's church service, every prayer meeting, every youth rally, every youth conference, every summer camp, every pastor's conference, I've been to church more than you, okay? I'm 35 years old now. When I was 26 is when I believe I really got saved, even though I grew up that way. 
I was teaching faculty at a Bible school when I believe I really got saved. You know why? Because I grew up learning how to be a Christian. Here's the things Christians do. Here's the things Christians don't do. And I felt like I did enough of the Christian things to try and cover up my sinful heart that acted out in these ways. And I felt like these weren't as bad as the good things I was doing, even though I would never say this in my heart, it's what I really believed. And it took 26 years when I was teaching at a Bible school before I finally got honest with myself about my hopeless, sinful state and said, why is it the fact that every time I rededicate my life to God, it doesn't stick? I mean it this time, God. I know I've said that like 123 times, but this time it's different. Why? It failed every single time because it was my dedication instead of being honest that I was wicked and sinful in my heart. And the only hope I had, even though I was able to convince all the other church people that I was a good Christian boy, the only hope I had was if someone stronger than me, greater than me, above me could pull me out of my condition by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has done with the gospel, that he reaches into our chest, that sinful, wicked heart. He takes it out, and by his grace, a free gift, he replaces it with a tender, soft heart that is responsive to his laws and his decrees and commands to where it's not anymore. Here's how you be a good Christian, but it's, whoa, look what he did for me. What am I supposed to do except give my life for him? Right? See, I could get up here and say, all right, guys, the Bible says that we should serve one another, so let's go. And we could go, yeah, it says that. Bible says that we could, uh, we should serve one another, and Jesus showed the example of washing one another's feet, and, you know, he said, uh, I, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life. So come on, guys, let's follow Jesus' example. All right, we all know it's all there. Let's all do our part. Come on, let's hike up our bootstraps and let's serve one another because we're supposed to. The Bible says so. It's kind of like saying, come on, Husbands, let's be good husbands. Come on, wives, let's be good wives. Let's do everything that we ought to do because we're supposed to. Does your spouse want that from you? They want loving service because of what you have received in, in that person. We are contributors, not consumers, because we've received the greatest gift that we could have ever received in our whole lives. And that magnitude of that gift ripples into every other area. We see this. Last week, Pastor Pete taught our, second, or our fourth core value, which was um, we do life together because we are better together. And in that, he went to Acts chapter 2, and he told the account of how the apostle Peter was preaching to this massive crowd of people. And when he did, they, thousands of people got saved and came to faith in Christ. And, and, and what happened from that? These people came to faith in Christ, and it says they shared all things in common. They sold stuff, and they brought all their stuff together to look out for one another's need because Peter told them they should do that. No. He didn't have to tell them. Peter didn't have to say, all right, guys, now that you're Christians, let's sell our things, let's bring them together, let's take care of each other, let's serve one another because that's what Christians do. 
Now, he did say things like that in his letters to the churches when he saw that their fruit wasn't matching the gospel. But ultimately, in the first account of thousands of people getting saved, these people get saved by the grace of God and they go, you know what? We recognize everything we have is not ours. We may as well sell a lot of it, give it to each other. Let's take care of one another. You got a need, I got this, I can help fulfill that. And it happens again two chapters later, the exact same thing, where, where they, they get saved by the grace of God. We're not talking about religious rituals. The Holy Spirit comes in and transforms them, saves them by grace, makes them new creatures. And the response, the overflow of the Holy Spirit of God inside of these people was, you know what, guys? Uh, I got a house. I guess I'll sell it because some people need some stuff. So, uh, Yeah. Now, before you're like, wait, he ain't asking me to sell my house, right? No, but if God tells you to. Each of these people were compelled to give of what they had because of what took place inside of them, not because of external voices telling them, hey, you know what? This is what Christians do. Which is why I said what I said when if the gospel has not compelled you to give of yourself in every way that you have option to, then I fear for you that maybe either you don't believe the gospel or you have it wrong in thinking like God cleans up the little mess when the truth is God came to your burnt house that you burnt down, cleared it out with a bulldozer and like Chip and Joe put it up brand new in a way that you couldn't afford or accomplish on your own. The gospel's not that God comes and cleans up your little messes. He comes and cleans up and restores and redeems and makes new what you totally butchered. And I don't say this at you, it's at me too. And when you see that, which only comes from you first realizing how bad your condition is, and you realize how much he saved you out of that bad condition and brought you into his family, those ripples go into every area of your life. It touches everything. And you don't need a preacher to tell you, hey guys, let's serve. Because the Spirit of God in you makes you a new creation to where you want to serve. And this is why we are contributors, not consumers. We contribute because... We are saved to serve. We were in Ephesians chapter 2 where we read that passage of the gospel. If we kept reading in verse 8, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right after he tells us the gospel, Paul preaches the gospel to these guys. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God loved you so stinking much that, that he paid for your sins and brought you into his family. It is a free gift by the grace of God, saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God so no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He preaches the gospel and then he rolls into the fact that if we've been saved by this gospel, it's for good works. 
See, if salvation was only about being saved and getting to heaven and getting the relationship between you and God fixed, then wouldn't God just be like, okay, I saved you and come join me now? He leaves us here on assignment. He leaves us here with the ministry of reconciliation where we cry out to others, be reconciled to God. Come on. God did this for you. Where we serve our brothers. We serve those who are not our brothers from who we are in our new identity in Christ. We want to love and we want to serve. But it's not enough to just know that we're supposed to. That's the point of all of this. Because God is not interested in our half-hearted, begrudged, obligatory service. The same way that your spouse is not interested in your half-hearted, begrudged, obligatory service to them. The same way that people who love you and you love them aren't interested in you doing things for them because you're obligated or feeling pressured to. You want those acts motivated out of love, out of gra gratitude. See, an accurate understanding of the gospel creates an accurate response to the gospel. An accurate understanding of the gospel creates an accurate response to the gospel. If the response is not there, I wonder if you have truly believed or if you've just believed an idea about a Jesus or a God and kind of maybe chalked him up in your image. If you have truly believed that you've been saved from your hopeless sinful state, you cannot help but respond with love and service and gratitude. Romans chapter 12 has a very famous verse in it. Very, very popular passage. Romans 12 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'll pause there for a moment. Translations I grew up in um, said, which is your reasonable service. If you look up the Greek word there, it's uh, logikos, I believe, which is the root word that we get logic from, saying that presenting your body to God in light of all this that we have seen and heard and believed, presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God, saying, here's my body for your use, that is the logical response. That is reasonable service. That is our act of worship. Our saying, you gave all for me. You paid the highest price for me. I'm yours. Here I am, Lord. Do what you want with me. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by, the test, or that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. He's talking about us right there. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the Apostle Paul saying, every single one of us is a member of the body of Christ. And even though all of us are designed differently for different purposes, to accomplish different tasks and different things, not all of you are teachers that are supposed to be in the pulpit. But what did God design you to do? How has he wired you? What gifts has he given you that from the overflow of grace on your life, you would respond by giving what God has given to you back to him? He's basically sitting here saying, we've all got different gifts, but we all need to use them for God's purposes. We contribute because God is glorified when we use our gifts, our gifts for his purposes. Paul also told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes on with that same illustration to say, hey, there's one body, Christ is the head, we are all members of the body, and even though we all accomplish different purposes, one of us is not more important than the other. The hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. We all need each other. Don't let the enemy lie to you and convince you that your gifts, your talents, your wiring, your resources, what God has given you is less significant than someone else. God chose to make you the way he chose to make you. And he has a purpose for that. And our responsibility is to go, God, how did you make me? What did you make me good at? And why? What do you want me to do with it? What can I do in light of eternity with these gifts that you've given me? We contribute because we have been adopted into the family. That same letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters. I, I love, if you were here last week or if you caught us online last week, Pastor Pete, when he was preaching, brought up sweet Cora, introduced their new adopted daughter to us. How precious, how sweet is that little girl. She's beautiful. She was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and they drove all the way down there, and she could not say, pick me. She didn't even have the cognitive ability to say that or to make a case why she should be chosen. She had no ability to contribute. She couldn't help pay for the thousands of dollars that adoption costs. She couldn't wipe her own bottom. She couldn't change her own clothes. She couldn't hold up her own bottle. She could do none of those things. But Pastor Pete and Jamie, of the love that was in their heart, said, we want you in our family. And they have this daughter in their family now that they did not have. She didn't deserve it. What did she do to earn it? Nothing. But because of the love they had, they brought her into the family. Scripture teaches here, as well as in Galatians, multiple places that God adopts us into his family as sons and daughters. 
This is why we cry out, Abba, Father, Romans tells us. He becomes our Father. Now, I don't know about your house, but growing up, Pastor Derek, if you've been here very long at all, you've heard him talk about the difference between the family table and the restaurant table. If we had these two tables up here. Restaurant table, well, you're a consumer. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. You're going in with your money to pay for goods and services, to pay for the goods of the food and the services of being waited on. On the family table, you're not. You're a part of the family. Now, if I'm at the restaurant and my food is burnt, my service is horrible, because I'm paying in exchange for good and serv- goods and services, I have a right to say, hey, this is not acceptable. I'd like to talk to a manager or something like that. could even say, I'm never coming back here again. Being Christians, I don't recommend that type of behavior. But we should, we should handle those things graciously, I believe. But I wouldn't be wrong for doing that necessarily because I'm a consumer and they didn't serve me properly and they didn't give me good product. At the family table, if mom burns the chicken, I can't go, I don't think I'm coming back here. What? <laughs> Sit your tail down. In fact, you get to clean up all the dishes today. You should think before speaking to mama like that. I grew up in the South, y'all, okay? <laughs> Things are different at the family table because you're not a consumer. You are family, and therefore you contribute. What do you, sometimes you set the table, sometimes you take out the trash, sometimes you cook maybe, whatever it may be. Because you are family, you're not there for the product, you're there for the relationships. And because of that, you contribute to everyone's nurturing and well-being. And so church is not, oh, the pastor burnt the chicken, or um, I don't like the way they do this or that. If you are called by God to be a part of a church family, it's no longer, oh, I don't think I'm going to go back there. It's, oh, let's walk through this graciously. If something needs to be addressed, let's handle it graciously and in love because I'm a part of the family. Finally, we give, we contribute because we will give an account. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. In this passage we're about to read, Jesus himself is speaking. And he tells a parable. He tells this story. You've probably heard it before, the parable of the talents. Matthew 25 and verse 14, Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. Talents meant money. It was a type of money back then. To one he gave five talents. To another, two. Um, To another, one. To each according, check this out, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. They gave an account for what they did with what was given to them. Verse 20, 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. But (laughs) here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I had not scattered seed. Then you ought to have invested my money at least with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to he who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the point, the plain meaning of the text here in this parable, that, this story that Jesus is saying? What he's saying is God has given you things. What are you going to do with them? Because you will give an account. This is sobering truth. God gave you gifts and talents. God gave you resources. God gave you time. God gave you relationships and connections. And you will stand before that master. Will you be able to say, God, you gave me these gifts and these resources, and with those, I did this. Or will you say, you know, God, I really didn't want to botch it. So I just kind of, you know, set on it so that I wouldn't, you know, do anything wrong. You will give an account for what you do with what God gave you. Some of you have been gifted with leadership. Are you using those skills for God's glory? Some of you have been gifted with handyman skills. Some of you can sing or play the guitar. Some of you are great with children. Some of you are great with money. Some of you are very affluent. What are you doing with God, with what God gave you? A few questions to ask ourselves today. Is my contribution proportionate to what I have received? Because here's the deal. We can look at other people and what other people are doing and we can use them to justify where we're at. And say, oh, I'm doing more than so-and-so. Or I'm, I'm definitely more involved than they are. Or I'm, uh, you know, they're not doing anything. So at least I'm not like that. That's not the metric that we will be weighed against. What you will be weighed against is what the master gave you. Now, this is a sobering truth, again. Works hand-in-hand hand with remembering the gospel. We should want to do this. And if you don't want to, then you need to do some internal evaluation. 
is my contribution proportionate? Does it level with, with what I have received? Is it proportionate to the grace and mercy that I have received? Is my contribution proportionate to the gifts and talents I have received? Am I using everything God gave me, the way he wired me? Is my contribution proportionate to the time God has given me? Am I trying to convince myself that going to church once a week is enough time? Or that if I say my, my prayer at mealtime, that that's enough communion? Is it proportionate to the time God has given me? Is my contribution proportionate to the resources God has given me? Or am I trying to convince myself that it is? Guys, we all, every one of us, me, we all got to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves and let the word of God graciously and lovingly confront us. Graciously and lovingly confront us. So how can we contribute? By asking ourselves, what has God gifted me to be naturally good at? What has God made me good at? And then how can I use that in light of eternity? God gifted these two to be able to sing. Musical talent. They're using those gifts for God's purposes. What has he made you good at? And how can we use that for God's purposes? How can I use that in light of eternity? Ask yourself, what am I passionate about? What has God put in my heart to make a difference for? And then how can I use that in light of eternity? Ask yourself, what's in my hand? Naturally, do you have tangible things that could be useful for God's purposes? I think about, again, that serve day that we recently had. Someone, there's a family that needed a new roof bad, bad, bad. And there were guys in our church that said, hey, I got a nail gun and I got those skills. Hey, I got a ladder. What do you got? I've got this. I've got that. And they brought all their things together to serve and to love and to give. What is in your hand and how can that be used in light of eternity? And finally, ask yourself, where is their need? Where is there a need, and can I fill that need? Some needs you can fill, some needs you can't. If there is a need that you can fill, fill it. Why? Because we are contributors, not consumers. In light of eternity, what are we going to do with what God gave us? It's better to ask yourself that now than to be asked by God at the end of your life, right? It's good to get ahead of that and ask yourself now, what am I doing with what God gave me? Again, the gospel is the motive of all of this. The reason why we spent the first half telling of the gospel is because I can sit here and just tell you you're supposed to. You're like, yeah, no. If it's not in your heart, it doesn't honor God. God is not glorified 
by people going, well, I guess I better, you know, if I don't, I'm going to give an account. We need to keep that sobering reality there, the account. But it's the gospel, the goodness of God, the gift that was given for us that drives and motivates this.